You're listening to a live recorded teaching from the Sunday Gathering at the Heights Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope that this teaching is an encouragement to you. To find out more about the Heights Church, visit theheightsdenver.com. I want to kick off today with a question. Here's the question. It's a rhetorical question. Uh, What makes a church good or bad? What makes a church good or bad? How would you rhetorical question, answer that question. What would you say? What makes a church community good? Or what makes a church community bad? Uh, obviously, not many people have opinions on a question like that. No, it's just, yeah, you know, it's like lots of opinions on how to answer a question uh, like that. Uh, and there are a lot of lenses we could look through whenever we ask this question. We could look through the lens of experience or vibe, right? And I'm not saying any of these are necessarily wrong. It's like, how, what did you experience? How was your experience at church? Like, was the parking good or bad, you know? And uh, here, if, you, if you're here this morning, it's like, it was bad. We're an urban church. Welcome to church in the city, right? You parked like a mile away, right? We don't have a cool suburban parking lot. It's like, is the building clean? What is the vibe of the people? Are the bathrooms clean? Do they smell good or do they smell bad? It's like, 100-year-old building, there's kind of a tension on there. I apologize, right? It's like, is the, is the coffee good or the coffee bad? Well, I hope that it's good. The owners of the roastery are likely in this room right now. We appreciate you guys uh, very much. I drink your coffee every morning. I have good opinions on your coffee. Um, you know, what is the experience or vibe? We could look through that lens. A lot of people look through that lens. What's the vibe of the church? Did I, did I feel like I liked it? Did I feel like I didn't like it? We could look through the lens of the community itself, the people. It's like you just a little, little interaction, but look around real quick. Look around. Look around. You can look around. Look at some people. Look at some people, you know? It's like, okay, now look at me. Are these the kinds of people you want to go to church with? Are they? And you're like, okay, I'm no longer looking around. You know, it's like, I don't know. But seriously, you know, you can look through the lens of the community itself. Are the people the right age, the right socioeconomic makeup? Are these the kinds of people that I could see myself doing life with? Are they like me? Are they not like me? You know, a lot of people look at church and evaluate church uh, through the lens of community. Let's get a little awkward. It's like, let's do the lens of the service right here. It's like, let's talk about the band. Is the music good or is the music bad, Right? You know, it's like this guy right here, Jace, the director, you you like his vibes or not? Is he too cool? Not cool enough for you? What do you think? I don't know. Rhetorical questions, right? Rhetorical questions. Was the band on beat? Do you like the music, right? Do you, are we too high of a church? Do we have too much liturgy or not enough liturgy for you? Do we do enough responsive readings or not enough responsive readings? What do you think of the service? What do you think about the fact that we talk about money every week? Like, does that just kind of make us look like money-grubbing pastors? Like all other pastors? All pastors just out for money. What do you think about that? Let's get awkward. What do you think about the Bible teaching? Right? I do the majority of it here. This is rhetorical. No, no. Don't yell at me. Don't yell at me. What do you think? Lots of opinions on Bible teaching. Is it relevant enough to life? Is it over your head? Is it too deep or is it too shallow? Do we, do, we, do we teach the kinds of things that you like or don't like? Do I seem competent enough, but not too competent where I come across condescending and prideful, right? Do I seem confident? Do I seem overconfident, or is my voice shaky? You know, it's kind of nervous. You know, I get nervous sometimes. I'm getting up here and talking to you. I've been doing this for years. I still get nervous. It's like, what is the teaching like? Yeah, it's too deep. 
it's too shallow. Oh, I don't like that they teach three books of the Bible. It's too, you know, oh, I, I, I wish they taught more three books of the Bible. Oh, the teaching. Is it too long or is it too short? Answer, too long, right? <laughs> Look into the teaching. I mean, there are so many things we could use to evaluate the church, right? So many things. We could talk about church size. It's too big, too small. We could talk about, <laughs> we could talk about theology, right? It's too deep, too shallow of a church. We could talk about mission, too much justice, too little justice. We could talk about politics. They're always talking about politics. They're never talking about politics. It's like, man, we could, talk, we could use any lens we wanted, right? What makes a church a good church or a bad church? You should know the answer to that question. You should know the answer to that question. And I want you to know that it's not a bad thing to evaluate a church. You need to be able to evaluate a church. Like, really practically, some of you are here, you're joining us today, New Year kicking off, and you're kind of evaluating whether the Heights is the church for you. And it's like really good for you to evaluate a church. It's not a bad thing to evaluate a church. You should be able to evaluate whether a church family, a church community is a good church or a bad church, whether you should be a part of it. Others of you have been members of the Heights for years now, and it's a good thing for you to constantly, in a healthy way, be evaluating, man, are we doing well as a community? Like, are we doing what Jesus has called us to do? Is like what we're devoting ourselves to. Does it seem like it's what, those are the things we should be devoting ourselves to? It's a really good thing to evaluate the church. We have to ask ourselves, man, what makes a healthy church? What makes a healthy church? You need to know the answer to that question. What should we be aiming for together? What should it look like? What should we experience when we gather together? What should community groups look like? What should be foundational? These are important questions. Well, in Acts chapter 2, we get some of the answers to these questions. We're calling this the year of life together, taking a whole year talking about what it looks like to build a Jesus-loving, Spirit-empowered church community that models the good news of Jesus to our city. That's what this whole year is about. And to do this, we're starting by going all the way back to the beginning, looking at the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. And here's why. If you want to understand something, you've got to get down to its roots, right? You've got to get to its roots. If you want to understand somebody, what do you ask them? You ask them roots questions. Where are you from? Oh, you're from Alabama. I got gotcha. you. Oh, you're from Manhattan. I got gotcha. you. What was your family like? Oh, okay, you were that kind of family. I'm understanding your roots. Did you go to church? Did you grow up in church? Did you not grow up in church? Were you religious? Were you not religious? To understand something, you've got to go back to the roots. And so that's what we're doing with the church. We're spending these 11 weeks going back to the birth of the church to look at what they were experiencing and what they were devoting themselves to and going, man, how can we just do the same things? What they were doing when the church was born, we just want to do those things. What they were experiencing when the church was born, we want to beg God that we would experience those very same things. And here's why. Because instead of letting our subjective lenses discern what a healthy church is or what healthy life together looks like, we are just going to allow the scriptures from the birth of the church to help us discern what a healthy church is. And in Acts 2, 42 through 47, these six verses we find the core practices that define how the very first church lived life together. And so over these next 11 weeks, we're just going to be looking, we're going to be taking one practice a week and looking at each practice going, man, what were they doing? 
What does that mean for us, and how do we live into this? So here's the practices. Here's where we're going over the next 11 weeks. Uh, You see that the very first one, this is what we're going to get into today, is a devotion to the apostles' teaching. Next week, we're going to talk about fellowship, and we're going to talk about the importance of living life together with other other physical flesh and blood human beings, a.k.a. I'm going to go hard after some online church. I don't think it's a thing, okay? We got to get together. Sorry if you're online. You're welcome next week. Please come. <laughs> Fellowship, we got to be together. We got to be together with other people. The breaking of bread, we're going to get a little theology of communion here in a few weeks and go, man, why was this practice, the breaking of bread, central to the life of the church? We're going to talk about prayer. Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. This is when he's flipping tables and we got to go, man, we want to devote ourselves to seeking God, interceding on behalf of one another, interceding on behalf of our city, interceding on behalf of the nations. Signs and wonders. This is for my charismaniacs. We're going to talk about the signs and wonders, right? We're going to go, man, there was power on display in the Acts 2 church. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? How do we practice that? We're going to talk about signs and wonders. Radical generosity. This is money week. Now, some of you are already going, okay, you're calculating. Which week will that be? That will be the week that I'm out. Quit calculating, okay? Radical generosity. Gathering weekly. We're going to do a whole teaching, spend a whole week talking about what we're doing right here. Like, what should, what are we doing here? Why are we here on Sunday mornings, every Sunday morning with the church, gathering weekly? We're going to talk about small groups. We call those community groups here. Why everyone should be in a community group, a small group of, of Jesus followers that are, that are kind of like in one another's lives. You see, this isn't only like a pragmatic thing. This is something the church was doing in Acts chapter 2. They were in community groups. Passionate worship. Passionate worship. I like that. We got a, we got a passionate worshiper. Thank you, Jeff. We're going to talk about how we're going to reject passive worship and move toward passionate worship. I'm going to do a whole teaching on, have you ever wondered this, why the serious Christians raise their hands? We're going to talk about that. We're going to go like, why why do people do that? What does that mean, you know, to worship God passionately, to sing loudly, to pray loudly, to participate in worship? We're going to talk about unity in a culture of disunity. We're going to fight for unity in the life of the church to display the love of Jesus. And finally, we're going to talk about mission, that we must exist for the people that are not in this room yet. We must be a church that is on mission. These are the core practices of the Acts 2 church, and we're just going to take one every week, and we're going to talk about what it means for us. And here's the conviction. Here's the conviction that stands behind this series. If we want to recover the power of the New Testament church, we have to devote ourselves to the practices of the New Testament church. This is the conviction. Guys, if we want the power of the New Testament church, if we want to relive the book of Acts right here in our church family, if we want to see it unfold in our city, in our world, then we've got to devote ourselves to the practices of the New Testament church. Just go, man, what were they doing? What were they experiencing? How are we going to give ourselves to the very, uh, to the very same things? It's like, man, they were seeing people come to faith every day. I want that. They were seeing people radically healed, physically healed. It's like, man, I want that. They were planting churches in their cities and around the, around the known world at the time. It's like, I want to be a church that does those kinds of things. They were practicing radical generosity. They were doing works of justice. It's like, man, we want to do those very same things. But listen, if we want to experience the power of the New Testament church, we've got to devote ourselves. It takes devotion, guys. We've got to devote ourselves to the practices of the New Testament church. What happens is a lot of people want to separate power and practice. Man, it's like so many people. It's like, who do, everybody wants this. So many people are like, man, you know what I want? I want the power of God on my life. I want to be a part of a church that, like, it's like you enter in and you're like, man, God is alive here. 
Man, so many people want the power of God, the blessing of God, the anointing of God, the favor of God, but they want them without devoting themselves to the practices. We've got to give ourselves to the practices. You can think about a little illustration. You can think of these 11 practices that I just outlined, like wood on the fire. It's like in the first part of Acts chapter 2, we taught on that last week, the Holy Spirit lights a flame. And through these practices that the church then devotes itself to, the the things that we're going to devote ourselves to, we're like throwing wood on the fire to keep the flame of the Holy Spirit going. If we want the power of the New Testament church, we've got to devote ourselves to the practices of the New Testament church. So over the next 11 weeks, we're going to talk through these practices and we're going to allow them to become the lens through which we evaluate our life together. Where we go, man, we want to devote ourselves to these 11 practices. So today is about practice number one. Practice number one, a devotion to the apostles' teaching. A devotion to the apostles' teaching. This is everything, that we would be a church family that loves our Bibles. This is it. Look at Acts chapter 2 in verse 42. This is the whole teaching text today, okay? This is the whole thing. I got like a quarter of a verse for you, okay? Here it is. Acts 2, verse 42, very first thing they devoted themselves to, it says this. They devoted, now that's an important word, they committed themselves, this is in an ongoing way, they committed themselves over and over and over and over again, they devoted themselves to, very first thing, what? The apostles' teaching. Now, this is really fascinating to me. Have you ever wondered that for most churches in the world, the, the largest part of the Sunday gathering is devoted to the ministry of teaching. Have you ever thought under that? You're like, you're rolling to church and you're like, I kind of wish we would just do more music. I kind of wish we would just like, you know, the, the man or woman on stage would just kind of like get over it and like get off the stage and we could just like get, get after a little bit more music, get after a little bit of prayer. It's like, why do we devote so much time to the teaching moment when we gather together, well, here's your verse. Here's your verse. Acts 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is where it comes from. This is the very first thing they devote themselves to, is gathering together to listen to teaching. This is it. It's what defined the first, it's the very first thing in the long list of things that defined the church at the birth of the church. Now, it's important that we see who was doing the teaching. This is really important to pay attention to. We're going to talk a lot about this. It's important to see who was doing the teaching. Who was it? It was the apostles, right? They were devoting themselves to whose teaching? The apostles' teaching. Now, who are the apostles? Well, they are the 12 men who had been with Jesus, his disciples. Now, poor Judas went astray, right? He goes off the deep end. He denies Jesus. Everything unwinds for him. Very tragic story. And in Acts chapter 1, they appoint Matthias in his place, right? So these are the 12 apostles, these men who had experienced Jesus. They have an authoritative voice in the church because of their experience with Jesus over the past few years. They had been with him. They'd walked with him. They'd heard him teach. They'd watched him do miracles. So these 3,000 people come to faith in the first part of Acts chapter 2. And the very first thing that marks their life together is sitting and listening to and living the teachings of the apostles. Now, we have to ask the question then of like, okay, well, what were the apostles teaching? What were they teaching? What were they, 
What were they talking about? What were they giving their time to studying together or whatever? Well, we actually know the answer to that question because we have many of their sermons and teachings recorded in the book of Acts. And it's made up of a, a number of things. First, they were teaching about Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. So they were opening up, I don't know, the book of Isaiah. And they were going, hey, you see, Isaiah, sa- Isaiah says this. And they were showing how Jesus fulfilled all of, the Old Testament, all of the books of the Old Testament. They were teaching Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. They were teaching on the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was central to their teaching. Right above our text, we looked at this last week, Peter stands up, gives the very first teaching that births the church, and it's all about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The cross and the resurrection were at the center of the apostles' teaching. They were likely recalling amazing experiences that they had had with Jesus to teach people what Jesus was like. Just imagine this. Imagine this. They, they get, Peter gets up. It's like Peter, just imagine Peter getting up right here on the stage and going, guys, i got to tell you what Jesus is like. He's amazing. And he just, they just start recalling experiences. I remember watching Jesus walk on water, guys. He's powerful over nature. He goes, i got to tell you, i got to tell you guys, i got to tell you about the grace of Jesus when we are at our lowest point. He goes, guys, a few weeks ago, I had denied Jesus. Jesus told me this thing, you know, Jesus, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter looks at Jesus and he goes, I would never deny you. You know, because Peter's a passionate guy. He's kind of like a hothead, right? I'll never deny you. Jesus goes, you will. A few days later, he's sitting by a fire. A little girl, the least threatening human being on the planet, asks Peter, hey, are you with that guy? And he goes, I've never, I've never even heard of that guy. And he blows it. He's at his dark, the lowest of the low. Jesus dies. He's raised from the dead. Imagine Peter just recounting this story. This is likely what they're doing in the Jerusalem church. And he goes, I got to tell you. He goes, Jesus came back, he, ra- he was raised from the dead, and I saw him in the distance, and I felt so much shame. But do you know, in my shame, Jesus drew, Jesus drew toward me in my shame? Wow. This is what Jesus is like, and he's like telling people what Jesus is like. He called me over to the fire, I denied him by a fire, he put me by another fire, and he restored me. And then he's like, so let me give you three points about the patience of Jesus, because he's a preacher, right? <laughs> he's like, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, Jesus is full of grace for when we blow it, right? And this is what he's doing. They're just talking about their experiences with the living Jesus, what they've seen him do over the past, what, what they've seen him do over the past few years. They were talking about, they were teaching on the sayings of Jesus. They were recording this, they were uh, re- uh, recounting the Sermon on the Mount, likely, and go, wow, Jesus taught us to love our enemy. Jesus taught us we don't have to be anxious. It's like, man, what? You just think back to Jerusalem, first church. What an experience to sit at the feet of the apostles and learn about the cross the resurrection, discipleship, the power of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. Now, what I want you to see here is very simply the fact that the first church was a learning community. This is what marked their life together. The first thing that defined their life together was learning about the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, about discipleship to Jesus, about God's way in the world. One of their discipleship markers was being a learner humbling themselves and going, man, I, I don't know everything. I'm, I'm here to learn. So we're answering the question, what makes for a healthy church? What makes for a powerful church? What make, we're going all the way back to the beginning. And first, we see that it is a church that's devoted to the teachings of the apostles. Core. Core to everything. Now, we bring this into 2023, and we think, okay, well, if that's what makes a healthy church, like, how do we live that, right? Like, how do we devote ourselves to the teachings of the apostles? Because it's like, 
sorry to break it to you, Peter's not here. You know, it's like, I don't have Peter backstage. Come on out, Peter. Tell us about the fire moment, you know? It's like, Luke's not here. Mark isn't here. Matthew isn't here. You guys got Corbin, you know? I apologize for how lame the teacher you have is. It's like, we don't have the apostles here. So how do we, how can we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, most of you are ahead of me. We have this gift called the New Testament, which what is the New Testament? I'm going to tell you how we got it in just a second. The New Testament is a library of the apostles' teaching. This is what the New Testament is. You see, what happened in the book of Acts, here's how it happened, is that the church started to multiply out of Jerusalem. Right here, we're looking at the first church. It's the only church that existed. Heart of everything in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church starts planting other churches, other local churches, other communities of Jesus' followers, and all of a sudden, the apostles can't be everywhere, right? They can't go to all of the places that they've planted churches and tell people about their experiences with Jesus and recall the teachings of Jesus. So what do they do? Well, they start writing biographies of Jesus' life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They start writing letters to churches in places like Ephesus and Corinth and Galatia and Philippi. And all of, this, all of the sudden, the apostles' teachings go from purely oral in one location to written so that they can be in multiple locations. Are you guys with me? This is how the apostles' teaching starts to spread around. Now, what the church did was, this is oversimplification, but for our purposes, what the church did was they began to collect the apostles' teaching and make a library of the apostles' teaching that we call the New Testament. This is why... For all of church history, the New Testament has become the authoritative teaching of the church because it is the apostles' teaching. You guys with me? You following me? So how do we, so the question then is how do we devote ourselves in 2023 to the apostles' teaching here? Well, we devote ourselves to the teachings of the New Testament. This is it. This is it. Our life together is a life devoted to hearing learning, studying, memorizing, and living our Bibles. This was the very first practice of the Acts 2 church. And it's funny, it's like, man, you know, you, you think we're a part of like a, a global thing called the capital C Universal Global Church. And it's like today, on this Sunday morning, it's this wild idea that no matter where you went, where you found a church, likely one of the things they would be doing anywhere in the world is opening up the New Testament, the apostles' teaching, reading it, going, man, what does this mean, and what does it mean for life Monday through Saturday? It's like, man, I just think about all of our church plants that Jonathan just talked about. This is what they're doing. It's like my friend Alan, Kenyon, from Nairobi. He's back in his hometown of Nairobi, planting a church in the heart of the city, trying to reach college students. Do you know what they've done today already? I think Nairobi's ahead of us, okay? I don't, get, I don't have my time zone straight. I didn't prepare for this, you know? But you know what they've already done today? The church in the heart of Nairobi has gotten together. They've opened the New Testament, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and been like, man, what does this mean? Our friend Thomas, we're planting a church in London, Redeemer Queen's Park. What are they doing in the heart of London? They've already done this. They've opened up the apostles' teaching, going, what does this mean? What does it mean for our life Monday through Saturday? This is what they're doing. It's like, man, guys, and I've had the privilege of being all over the world, worshiping with people in West Africa. It's like, do you know what they're doing in West Africa? They're opening up the apostles. This is what marks the church. Every healthy church is a church devoted to the apostles' teaching. Every healthy disciple on the individual level is a disciple that is devoted 
to the apostles' teaching. So how do we do this here? We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, I want to let you inside my brain for just a second. It's a scary place to be. But uh, on Wednesday, as I was writing this and working this teaching out to bring it to you guys, I had a bit of a crisis in my office. Okay? I had a bit of a crisis. It was an internal crisis. I didn't let anybody else into this crisis other than the Holy Spirit, right? And the crisis, the crisis I was facing is like, man, which way should this teaching go? Because here's what I know. Here's what I know. Whenever a pastor like me starts talking about the Bible, this book right here, in the New Testament, and you know, we should love our Bibles and devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the apostles' teaching. What I know is that so many questions start to bubble to the surface. It's like so many questions. What I know is like so many of us have been on, you were on TikTok last night, and you saw like some random video going, man, you can't trust your Bible. Here's all the reasons you can't trust your Bible. So I know that whenever I start talking about the Bible, so many questions bubble up, and you go, man, like questions like, man, what is the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? Questions like, man, like, can I trust that is it, what is in my Bible is what the original authors wrote? Because, like, didn't this go through 3,000 translations? And now, like, how do I even know that this is what the original authors wrote? If, like, Luke wrote Acts, which he did, how do I know what we're reading today in Acts 2.42 is what Luke wrote thousands of years ago? And what about the Old Testament? It's like we're talking about devoting ourselves to the apostles. What about the Old Testament? So many questions bubble to the surface about the Bible. And here's what I would say. These are super valid questions that deserve deep consideration. Not shallow consideration. Deep consideration. Deep consideration. A couple years ago, I, I preached a sermon. The title of that sermon was Captivating. It was critical issues in biblical studies, okay? People, I mean, people were going wild when I did this talk, right? It's like people were like, critical issues in biblical studies. What a fascinating thing. And what we did in that teaching uh, is I tried to unpack some of the answers to these questions because I think they're worthy of deep consideration. And our conviction as the leadership of the church is we do not avoid hard questions, It's like we want to take them head on. We believe that there are good answers to hard questions. So instead of taking this teaching that way, what we did is we took that sermon that I preached and we turned it into an article uh, that you can actually grab on your way out. This is a shameless plug in the middle of the teaching for an article. Uh, We turned it to an article called Can I Trust the Bible? Four Perfectly Fair Questions to Ask About the Ancient Book Christians Live By. And uh, this is an article, it answers four questions. What is the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? How do we know which book should be called Scripture? And can we trust that what we have in our Bibles today is what God inspired the original authors to write? And so what I want to encourage you to do is if you have big questions coming up about the reliability of the Scriptures, grab one of those, read it, and we would love to have a conversation with you because we don't want to avoid the hard questions. But in lieu of taking this teaching in that way, instead of doing that, I want to spend some time talking to you about the why and how of a devotion to the Bible. I want to spend a little bit of time talking to you about the why and the how of a devotion to the Bible. Why should we devote ourselves to the Bible? Why was this the thing that the very first church did? Of all places they could start, why was this the place that they started? Give a little bit of vision, and then I want to talk to you about how we plan to do that here, uh, how we have been doing that, and how we plan to do that uh, going forward. So first, why should we devote ourselves to the Bibles? Why would, to the Bible? Well, it's not only because uh, it's what the Acts 2 church did, right? That's what I've been showing you so far, uh, which is a good reason, but it's because of what's possible 
in your life, in our church, and in our city through a devotion to the Bible. It's because of what's possible. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 calls the Bible God's speech. He uses the term God-breathed, which has the idea of speech. Whenever we breathe out, God is breathing out, he's speaking. And what we see in the scriptures is that God's speech is powerful for bringing new life and new change into dead, dry places. This is what God's word does. So let me just show you this from some different spots in the scriptures. We see this at the very beginning of the Bible. I'm just going to steamroll you some Bible on the Bible for just a few minutes, if, that, if you don't mind, okay? Um, so we see this in the very beginning of the Bible. We see this in the creation story. What happens in the creation story is that God speaks. The most often repeated phrase in the creation story is what? And God said. And what, where God's speech goes forth, new life springs up out of the dark void. This is what God's word does. It brings life. From Genesis chapter 1, God's word brings life into dead, dry places. And so listen to me. This is really practical. If you feel dead and dry on the inside, if you find cynicism and skepticism when it comes to God and his word bubbling up, what you don't need is a journey away from God's word. You need more of God's word. This is like what gives life in dead, dry places. We see the opposite of this two chapters later in Genesis chapter 3. When God's word is ignored, it brings death. This is the core of the garden story, right? What happens is that Satan, the great enemy, our great enemy and God's, he comes to the people in the Garden of Eden, and what he doesn't do, I try to point this out all of the time, is he doesn't do what he, we think he would do. He doesn't, like, pop out from behind a tree and freak them out with, like, scary boogeyman demonic stuff. What does he do? He comes, and he just slides a little question in. And he slides, he slides a question in about the reliability and goodness of God's word. He said, did God really say? And it's with that question on the reliability and goodness of God's word that the world comes undone. And you see this principle, it's in the very, it's in the very beginning of the Bible, in the first three chapters of the Bible, you see these principles. Where God's word goes is listened to, received, new life springs up. Where God's word is ignored cynically questioned, denied, death results. Renewal and ruin hang in the balance of how you decide to engage God's word. Genesis 1 through 3. This is true of all of the stories in the Old Testament. You think of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. How does his whole life trajectory change? God's word comes to him. God speaks to him. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to multiply your family. He obeys God, and then it happens. Happens imperfectly, but it happens. This is what happens with the Mo in the Moses story. God shows up in the burning bush and he speaks to Moses. And Moses listens and obeys to his word and a nation is set free. You see this through the whole story of, of the kings. First and second Samuel, first and second kings. You see this Genesis 1 and 3 principle play out where the kings hear God's word and listen to God's word. The, the kings themselves and the nation thrives where they ignore God's word and say, I don't need that. I'm going to go my own way. I'm good being an autonomous human being. I don't need God's word in my life. They are ruined. It's like the principle of the whole Old Testament. This is why Psalm, we'll put this up on the screen. This is why Psalm 1 says this. I think Psalm 1 is a, this is how the Psalms open. I think this is a summary 
of the whole Old Testament, right? It says this, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Now watch this little progression you see right there in verse one. First you walk in it, you check it out, then you stand in it, you're like, oh, I'm gonna be here for a second, and then you sit in it. Then you're sitting in it and you're in the bad advice. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, here it is, his delight, her delight is in the Lord's instruction. Guys, everything rises and falls on this right here. Do you delight in God's word? Most people I know would be like, no. It's like, okay, well, how do we start doing that? Instead, their delight is in the Lord's instruction and they meditate on it day and night. They carry it with them. They love God's word. He is like a tree planted. Notice the stability. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel shaky. It's like, man, I feel shaky in life. I feel anxious. I feel like I'm getting blown around. I go, man, the one who delights in God's word will be like a tree planted beside flowing streams. You're going to have all the nutrients you need that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever this person does prospers. Wow. Let's not go to the next one yet. Put, put Psalm 1 back up there. I want to talk about it for a second. Pay attention to this. This is saying, if we will devote ourselves to our Bibles, we will be happy, strong, fruitful, steady, and prosperous. It's like, man, why did, why is the very first practice of the Acts 2 church to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? I think they have this in mind. Why did they see so much stability and power and fruitfulness? Because they just loved God's word. The apostles were just up there opening the Old Testament scriptures going, this is all about Jesus. They were teaching the sayings of Jesus, talking about what it means for life. And the disciples and those churches just bear fruit. They have all the nutrients they need for everything God wants to do in their lives, in their church community, in their life together, in their cities. Wow. This is why Psalm 19 says this. I think they have this in mind too. They were so formed by the scriptures. They had Psalm 19 in mind, 7 through 11. It says, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. What a word. There's no corruption in it. It's perfect. Here's the promise. Renewing one's life. You see that right there? That's the Genesis 1 and 3 principle with God's word. Listen and be renewed. Ignore and be ruined. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. You need wisdom? You feel like you're inexperienced in what you're up against in life? Right here. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold. Wow. I had to ask myself when I was preparing this, I was like, do I, do I want my Bible more than money? I don't know. That's a hard question. More desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold. 
and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your, in, in addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. This is saying, guys, listen, if, I think the Acts 2 church has this in mind. If we will devote ourselves to our Bibles, we will be renewed, wise, glad, full of joy, and rich in the truest sense of the word. Holy smokes! Psalm 119 says this, How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Now notice this. There's a big difference between just hearing God's word and walking in God's word. We talk about this all the time, but there's a big difference between resonating with God's word and actually obeying God's word. We not only want to hear it and devote ourselves to hearing it, but we want to devote ourselves to walking according to the Lord's instruction. We move over to the New Testament. I'm going to speed up a little bit. Look at what Jesus says about the word of God. He says this, it is written, people must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think that they heard Jesus say this, and they go, hey, whenever we form up as a community, you know what we're going to do? We're going to devote ourselves to God's word, because we need it. And Jesus right here gives us a really helpful analogy for how we should think about our Bibles. He says, our Bible is like food for our soul. So think about what he's saying. He's saying that as much as your stomach needs food, your soul needs Bible. It's the sustenance, man. It's the sustenance of everything. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He says this, one of the most famous Bible passages on Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God. Those three words are that that term, God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for. Here's what scripture is for. Here's what we're looking for it to do in us when we gather here, when we gather in groups, when we open up our Bibles on our own. It is profitable for teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles. Teaching, right? It's profitable for teaching, for, we don't like this one, for rebuking. Ooh. Here's what that means. We should expect sometimes when we open the scriptures together to be rebuked. Oh, to be, here's, here's the more plain way of saying that. To be told you're wrong. I had this happen recently where I was reading the scriptures and I, um, I just had gotten like caught up in like my family life and trying to lead the church and um, I got caught up in a psalm about God's heart for the poor. And out of that, like, I was just rebuked that I need to give more time and attention and care to my poor friends and neighbors. It's like I was rebuked. I was rebuked. We should expect when we open up the scriptures to be told that our way of thinking and our way of living is wrong. Guys, listen to me. If the Bible always agrees with you, you are doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. If we're looking, when we open up the scriptures to come to a place and just like we're looking for a place to always be told that the way we think and the way we are living is right, we are doing it wrong in our life together. We should expect at times rebuke. Now the purpose of rebuke is right here following correction. God's not just rebuking because he's mean. He's rebuking us to correct us so he can give us life. So he can lead us in the way of life. And for training in righteousness. That means when we open the scriptures, we want to be trained to live in a new way so that, here's the purpose, the people of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. So here's what that means. Without the scriptures playing a massive role in our life together, we will be incomplete and ill-equipped for the work God has for us to do. Oh, we need the word of God. We need the word of God. The writer of Hebrews, this is the last one. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews 4.12. He says this, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. It's living. Why can he say it's living? He can say that the word of God is living because the God of the word is living. This is why. He goes, it's living. And if you have exposure to the Bible, you're going to see this, that like, it gets in there and you're like, whoa, that was, that's like what I was thinking this morning when I got out of bed. Any of you guys have that experience? I've had that experience multiple times this week. It's like living and alive and active, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's something, there's something powerful about it that pierces through our intentions and thoughts. And guys, can we just see like with this, it's no wonder the church in Jerusalem devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's no wonder the people were so radically changed and the church was so radically powerful. And guys, can I just say, in my 22 years of following Jesus, this has been my experience. I've like not only seen this on the pages of scripture, but I've seen this in my life where the Bible, the word of God is taught and studied and loved and understood, vibrant life breaks out and where it is ignored and questioned and cynically changed, there is only lifelessness. It's just true. It's true at a personal disciple level, and it's true at a corporate church life together level. It's like this, everything is dependent on this. If we want, I'm back to the principle, if we want the power of the New Testament church, listen to me, church family, we've got to devote ourselves to the practices of the New Testament church. First things first, a devotion to the apostles' teaching. And I actually think this is first because it was the apostles' teaching that inspired and informed the rest of the practices that come after it. They, like, wouldn't have known to be generous without the apostles' teaching. They wouldn't have known about the power of the Holy Spirit and the power to heal without the apostles' teaching. They wouldn't have known that, like, the church is a missional community that goes and tells other people about Jesus without the, apostle go, the apostles going, hey, guys, he gave us this thing. They probably weren't calling it. It's called the Great Commission. Where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. First things first, a devotion to the apostles' teaching. Now, the question we have to ask then is how do we do that here? Very simply, and this is where we're going to land the plane, very simply, how do we do that here? As we move forward in our life together, if we want to build a Jesus-centered, spirit-empowered, vibrant, healthy, multiplying church, we must keep the Bible at the center of everything we do individually and together. Because we are just, guys, listen, we are unashamed to be Bible people, right? It is not popular to be Bible people. We are Bible people. We are Bible people because we think life hinges on this. So let me end by giving you four ways we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching here at the Heights. Four ways we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Here's how we're living Acts 2 right here. Number one is Bible-saturated decision-making. Bible-saturated decision-making. I, I didn't think I was going to include this, but I think it's really helpful. When it comes to the leadership of our church, the pastors are not the authority. The staff team is not the authority. The church congregation and its members are not the authority. 
Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of our church, and he rules our church through his word. Jesus is the authority, and he rules through his word. So when it comes to decisions, listen to me. I think this is really important. When it comes to decisions about the future, when it comes to how our church is governed, when it comes to how we do ministry and why we do what we do, we want all of our decisions to be Bible-saturated decisions. We want to go like, okay, like, and this is what we're doing in this series. What does this say? And like, we're just going to go live it. We're just going to do this right here and let this right here be our playbook. We're not just doing what we think is cool. We're not just, we're not just allowing pragmatism to lead us. We're going, man, what are the scriptures about? And we're just going to devote ourselves to those very same things as we move into the future together. This is the very first practice of life together, guys. The second is Bible-saturated Sunday gatherings. Bible-saturated Sunday gatherings. This is why the majority of what we do on Sundays is pray Bible-saturated prayers and sing Bible-saturated songs. This is why we take a large portion of the time and devote ourselves to opening up the apostles' teaching, it, teaching, reading it, understanding it, and trying to figure out what it means for our lives. You will notice, if you stick around long enough, that we have the conviction that the majority of what we do is just open up to a book of the Bible and move our way through it so that it's set, so the apostles themselves are setting the agenda and I'm not setting the agenda. It's like what comes up is just what we're going to talk about. Okay? And so right now we're moving through Acts chapter 2 really slowly, looking what the apostle Luke wrote down for us, studying this apostle's teaching. Sunday after Easter, we're going to launch a, a series through 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at what the apostle Paul, for the rest of the year, what he, what he said, and we're just going to go, man, what does this mean for our lives? This is what we do on the Sunday when we gather together, is we open up the apostle's teaching. We go, what does it mean? What does it mean for my life? How does it change how we live Monday through Saturday? We want the apostles' teaching. We love it. We love it. Number three is Bible-saturated community groups. Bible-saturated community groups. Bible-saturated community groups. We say this. Our church is not a church with community groups. We are a church of community groups. Here's what we mean by that. You will not experience everything that the Heights has to offer until you're in a community group. You won't. And here's what we do in community groups. Well, let me tell you what we don't do in community groups. Here's what we don't do. We don't just do social hour, okay? Here's what, here's what the purpose of community groups, the core purpose of community groups is not. It's not just to like make some friends, though I hope you make friends. Get in there and you'll make some friends. But the core purpose is that we would be Bible-saturated disciples who are getting together and going, open Bible, open life, let's change together. Let's like read this. Let's get into this, and let's go, what is this saying? Let's have a discussion about what it means together in a circle with our friends, and let's go, what does this mean? How will this change how you're living tonight and tomorrow? Bible-saturated community groups. Bible-saturated community groups. As you get into a community group, listen to me. If you roll in, it's fine to have a social night every once in a while. We do that in our community group. We do once a month. We just eat together. But the majority of what we do is open our Bibles together. Guys, if you're in a community group, you need to go, when are we opening our Bibles? When are we opening our Bibles? We are called to be a Bible-saturated community group. You can be that person and say, Corbin said so, right? Let's open our Bibles. The final thing is Bible-saturated disciples. Guys, we want to be a church that builds disciples that when we are cut, we bleed Bible. We bleed Bible. When life gets hard, we bleed the promises of God. And so here's, here's a couple ways that we do this. Number one, uh, and you know this, you get tired of me saying this, but we're encouraging every person that calls the, church, the Heights Church home to build a habit of daily Bible reading. It's crucial. 
We spent a whole year talking about doing the year of the Bible last year and going, man, we want to build a habit of daily Bible reading. From my experience, there has been nothing, no practice in my life that has changed my life more than this one right here. Just like getting in the Word every morning. We've got a reading plan, church family, that you can go on our website, you can get the reading plan, one chapter a day, very simple. We've got instructions on how you can read the Bible for change. You don't always need somebody interpreting it like me. You can do it. God wants to speak to you. So build a habit of daily Bible reading. Bible-saturated disciples. Practice number one. This is practice number one. We want to devote ourselves to our Bibles. How can you do this personally? Well, very simply, you just look at these practices. You can show up here on Sunday mornings. It's very basic. I'm not trying to guilt you into anything, but this is what we do. We just open up our Bibles. You can get into a city group. A city group. A community group. We changed the name. I'm sorry. You can get into a community group. Dive in. Open Bible, open life. Just like dive in and go, man, I want to change. And you can build a habit of daily Bible reading. It's not hard. What makes a church good or bad? The first practice of a healthy church that we find in Acts chapter 2 is an unwavering devotion to the Bible. To believe the Bible, to teach the Bible, to defend the Bible, to love the Bible. But have you ever wondered, as we land the plane, have you under, ever wondered why God gave us a book? It's like of all things he could have given us. Like, why did, why did he give us a book? Why are we, as followers of Jesus, why are we book people? Why did he give us a book? Well, it's because a book uniquely gives us a shared and maintained record of who God has revealed himself to be over time. Guys, listen to me. I know, I know, I feel it. It's so easy to want to throw the book out and be people who are like, man, I, you know, I don't know about all this Bible stuff. I've got, I've got so many questions about the Bible. I don't know if I can trust the Bible. I've heard this from Instagram. I've heard this from YouTube. I don't know if I, I just like, let's throw the book away and just give me Jesus. It's so easy to be those people. It's like, just give me Jesus or more broadly, it's like, I don't want the Bible. It's like, just give me God. But guys, if we're honest, how could we even know the Jesus of Nazareth without the book? We couldn't. Without the book, any Jesus that we worship is just a Jesus of our own imagining. Any God that we say we worship is just a God likely created in our own image that loves the things we love, that approves of the things we approve of, that hates the things we hate and loves the things we love. We need the book. We don't need a God of our own imagination because in the Bible we meet a God that's better than any God we could imagine for ourselves. It's wild. He's better. The God of the Bible is a better God than we could ever dream of. He's a God that created you and me for joy for flourishing for life with him. He's a God that even in our rebellion against him, even in our rejection of his word, he's a God that pursues us. And at the center of the book, at the center of the word, is the word, Jesus Christ. The whole book is about him. The whole thing culminates in him, this God that in the greatest imaginable love comes while we're rebelling against him. And he saves us. 
He goes, man, I, you've rebelled against me. Your rebellion deserves death, but do you know what I'm gonna do? This is what the God of the Bible is like. I'm gonna die the death you deserve in your place. What a God. You can't find a God like that outside of the scriptures. You know what I'm gonna do? Well, you're plagued with Satan, sin, hell, and death. I'm gonna come and I'm gonna free you from all of them. I'm gonna die the death you deserve. I'm gonna rise from the dead and I'm gonna free you from all of your greatest enemies. This is the God of the scriptures. Jesus in Mark chapter four, this is where I wanna end. He gives us a parable for how we relate to the word. And I wanna end, I wanna end by just looking at these scriptures together and allowing them to kind of like work on your heart and allowing you to go, man, how am I relating to the scriptures and the words of Jesus? He says this, Mark chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into the boat on the sea and sat down. While the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore, he taught them. I love that. The ministry of Jesus was not only a healing ministry, it was a teaching ministry. He taught them many things in parables, and his teaching, he said to them, listen, Consider the sower who went out to sow, and he sowed some, some, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on the good ground and it grew up producing fruit that increased 30, 60, and 100 times. After Jesus gives this story, his disciples come to him and they're like, what do you mean? What's the seed? What's the soil? And Jesus goes on to give this interpretation. Let's go to the next slide. He says this. Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. The seed is the word of God. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear the word, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. This is the core scheme of the enemy in Genesis 3, to take away the word of God that was sown in your heart. And others are like the seed sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They are short-lived when distress or persecution comes because of the word. They immediately fall away. Let's go to the next slide. Others are like the seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seeds sown on the good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. What kind of soil do you have in your heart? What does it do with God's word? Is it snatched away? Does it fall on hard, rocky soil? Are you like this final soil? Like the seed sown on good ground? This is my prayer for our church, that we hear the word that we welcome the word, as Jesus says, and that we produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. This is what the Acts 2 church did. And this is what I pray our church will do. Will you guys pray with me? Jesus, we want to be a church 
made up of disciples individually who love your word. We want to be a church where your word stands at the heart of our life together. And we want to see your word go out and produce fruit in our city. It's an amazing word, a a word about the love of God, a, a word about the sacrifice of God, a word about what we should be and who we should be in the world. God, it's, it's amazing. And so we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Will you come and will you give us a love for your word? God, will you help us be a church that's devoted to the apostles' teaching? And we pray all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.